0: Talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA society journals and Congress debates worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. In this episode, Dr. Kenichiro Okano displays how shame and social phobia could manifest differently between the Eastern and the Western countries, and investigates them from a psychoanalytical point of view. With his personal history of becoming a bicultural psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in the United States and in Japan, he considers that while passivity and non-action induced by shame can be misunderstood in Western culture, it can potentially exert some paradoxical power and influence, at least in Japanese society. In its conceptualizations, the dissociation construct plays a central role, consistent with its research and clinical experience. Dr. Kenichiro Okano is a Japanese psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and professor of clinical psychology at Kyoto University Department of Education. He is a training and supervising analyst in the Japan Psychoanalytic Society. He's the author of 26 books on psychoanalysis, dissociative disorder and neurobiology. In 2016, he won the Japanese Psychoanalytical Association's Distinguished Publications Award.
1: My name is Kenichiro Okano, a Japanese psychiatrist and psychoanalyst with my training at the Menninger Foundation in the United States and I would like to present a couple of materials in this podcast. First, I'm going to introduce myself and my work, especially transcultural issues in the context of psychoanalysis. Then I will mention briefly about my clinical interest, dissociation and dissociative disorders. My career as a psychiatrist began upon my graduation from the University of Tokyo Medical School in 1982. While I was in a training program in psychiatry, I took an interest in psychoanalysis, which is being very actively promoted by a group of Keio University in Tokyo under the compelling leadership of Dr. Keigo Okonogi. Dr. Okonogi was one of the most prominent psychoanalysts in Japan and a disciple of Dr. Heisaku Kozawa. Dr. Kozawa was a pioneer of a psychoanalytic movement in Japan. In the fall of 1987, I moved to the United States, hoping to achieve my goals of becoming a fully trained psychoanalyst. I then joined the residency program at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, and completed it in 1993 when I was formally accepted to the Topeka Institute for Psychoanalysis, TIP. Fortunately, the TIP gave candidates many opportunities to read about different types of theories. Some of them struck a chord with me, others bored me, and some I found it to be questionable. During my training at the TIP, several topics particularly interested me, and one of them was shame and sociophobia. As I recall, shame was a topic that had preoccupied me since my training, As a psychiatrist, traditionally, Japanese psychiatry has a special concern for so-called anthropophobia, fear of human beings, a pathological form of intense shame in the presence of others. To be honest, I consider myself shame-prone and bashful and thought that my studies of this condition would not only reduce my patients suffering from this condition, but would also help me better understand myself. The conventional view held by Japanese psychiatrists is that anthropophobia is a condition unique to Japanese society that can be found only rarely in the Western countries. I thought that I'd be a culturally advantageous position to study anthropophobia when I moved to the United States. However, when I arrived in the United States, I realized that a new wave of interest in pathological shame was already there, especially in the form of a condition called social phobia in dsm 3 Although social phobia is very close to Japanese-type anthropophobia, I believed there to be subtle differences between them as they have different cultural roots. I decided to elaborate on this topic to advance my study in shame. In 1994, I wrote an article entitled social phobia: a Transcultural Viewpoint, which was published in the Bulletin of the of Clinic in 1994. In this paper, I demonstrated a rather radical dichotomy between two cultures, Western society where activity is valued versus Japanese society where passivity has some positive and paradoxical value. In terms of the Oedipal issue, I made an analogy of Manifesting one's faults in the Western society versus hiding or pretending having faults, or even not having a fault, in the Japanese society. In a sense, I was discussing the paradoxical nature of passivity and non-action, which are given power and meanings, in the Japanese society. I stressed that the meanings of passivity are palpable in a social context. For example, overt shows of affection, such as hugging and kissing, as well as verbal expressions such as I love you, or I'm proud of you, strike them generally as too blatant and conspicuous, sometimes to the point of being empty and ritualistic. However, in the background of this feeling of bashfulness and awkwardness is a belief that is ingrained in Japanese mind. What is most essential and important does not reveal and manifest itself. In other words, their passivity and non-expression are both defensive and tactful. I then discussed this paradox of passivity in several contexts. First, I picked the issue of a jase complex. A jase complex was presented by Heisaku Kozawa, who laid the foundation of psychoanalysis Japan. He visited Freud in Vienna in the 1930s, where he presented him a paper entitled Two Kinds of Guilt Feelings. The paper explained his theory of the Ajase complex, which he contrasted with Freud's Oedipus complex. According to Gosawa, there is a type of guilt in Japanese mind that is quite different from the guilt based on the fear of punishment, represented by the Oedipus complex. Freud apparently believed that the Oedipus complex could be seen universally across all cultures. However, assuming this story still primarily reflects the Western Judeo-Christian mentality, the question arises, can it be similarly found in the East? The notion of the Aziasi complex is one response to this crucial question. It is not the father's punishment, that produces feelings of guilt, but the forgiveness of the mother. Although in different contexts, the theory of Ajase and Steiner's idea of a solution to the edipus complex are considered alternatives to solutions through the father's show of power and threat. The next issue that I picked is Amai. Dr. Takeo Doi, a Japanese psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, Proposed the concept of amae in his 1971 work, The Anatomy of Dependence, based on his transcultural experience in the United States. Amae, according to Doi, is a special type of dependency on others that preserves harmony with them. Doi also explains that although it is close to love, amae does not involve the sexuality or ambivalence. That typically characterizes the Edipal period. He refers to the idea of passive object love, proposed by Ferenczi in 1931, which was further discussed by Ballant in 1968. Passive object love is expressed as a desire to be loved by others, which, according to Doi, is a type of love closest to amai. In a relationship based on amai. The issue of passivity and non-expression is involved in the following way. Usually, the Mionese is expressed passively and non-verbally by an individual with an expectation of others noticing it and acceding to it voluntarily. In Japanese society, people tend to feel each other's Mionese and satisfy them spontaneously in order to maintain peaceful social relations. If I think back, the contrast between the cultures in terms of activity and passivity that I proposed is, is rather hyperbolic and simplistic. It was like discussing the universe made of ordinary matter and the anti-universe made of antimatter. But I still feel the Japanese mentality is quite unique and still least understood among the Western people, and there is much to glean from it in the psychoanalytic context. Now, in the second section, I will talk briefly about my interest in clinical research on trauma and dissociation. Unlike shame and social phobia, that I was interested in from the beginning of my career, trauma and dissociation were topics that I inevitably had to face in my clinical practice. By the late 80s, when I moved to the United States, trauma-related disorders such as PTSD and dissociative disorders were already attracting the attention of American clinicians. The Menninger Clinic was admitting a growing number of traumatized people, and clinicians were struggling to learn more about these disorders. This new movement began to change the minds of analytically-oriented clinicians at the Menninger who were initially reluctant to acknowledge conditions such as dissociative identity disorders. My initial case of psychotherapy in my training happened to have different personalities inside of her, but I failed to notice them until more than one year into our psychotherapeutic work. When a patient switched to another personality in front of me, I felt that nothing that I learned in the analytic institute was helping me understand, and there was the situation. This was how I began to learn more about psychotherapy outside of the realm of psychoanalytic orientation. I struggle to develop the ability to understand and treat traumatized people by resorting to techniques outside of the analytically correct way of treating patients, including the use of hypnosis. However, my training in the TIP helped me also in putting the issue of trauma and dissociation in the psychoanalytic context. As I had a chance to read volume after volume of the standard edition of Freud's original work in the Institute's classes, I had the chance to look at the issue of trauma from a psychoanalytic standpoint, and I finally came to believe that there were many C's in Freud's writings in various contexts which could have been applicable to the understanding and treatment of trauma-related disorders. The topic of dissociation and clinical work with dissociated patients became one of my life works since that time, and I'm always haunted with the question of how traditional psychoanalysis comes to terms with the issue of dissociation, a notion that Freud accepted and then discarded before he developed the psychoanalytic theories. I have a pointed interest in whether A dissociative personality should be addressed as an independent and emancipated individual or partial or fragmentary existence. Recently, I published a paper titled Problem of Otherness in Dissociative Disorder in the European Journal of Trauma and Dissociation in 2019, where I discussed that the general trend among current clinicians is considered to not fully validate the uniqueness and autonomy of the dissociative identities. I realized that this trend stems from the era of the freud controversy, where Freud did not accept split personality or double consciousness, while Janet did. I discussed the conceptual ambiguity of the splitting of the mind in the sense of division versus multiplication, Division is where two minds were connected, while in multiplication they are separated, according to John O'Neill. Consequently, we tend to consider dissociation as a defensive and intentional act, at least when it was initiated with an understanding that dissociative identities are not structurally separated from each other, but are rather internally and dynamically connected to each other. In that a dissociative identity is somewhat causative to, and responsible for, another identity's thoughts and behaviors. I consider that these two ways of understanding the nature of a dissociative identity are still equally valid, but we should move more toward acknowledging the dissociative identity as an independent existence. In discussing this issue in this article, I presented a hypothesis of the neurobiological correlate of dissociative identity disorder based on the dynamic core model proposed by Gerald Edelman and Julia Tononi. I propose that the neurological correlate of dissociative identity disorder is conceived as a simultaneous and multiple existence of the dynamic core, which represents each dissociative identity as a unique and wholesome existence in the consciousness. My current interest is how psychoanalytic understanding and neurophysiology are connected and integrated. As psychoanalyst Sheldon Iskovitz proposed in the notion of dissociative term, the concept of dissociation prompts us to reorganize and take a fresh look at psychoanalytic theories, which are based on dissociation-free theories. Recently, many pioneers such as Philip Bromberg, Donald Stern, Elizabeth Howell, Sheldon Eskowitz, discuss dissociation in the context of psychoanalytic literature, which can further be informed by non-analytic conceptualization such as brain biology and trauma theory, which then enrich analytic understanding of human mind. Thank you for listening.